The scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that, you, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces... Even as myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. We are in week two of our sermon series. Uh, in the second Sunday of Lent. And during this season and series, we're walking through the different letters to the churches from John in the book of Revelation. And all of these uh, churches were in need of spiritual pruning in some way. As Todd introduced us last week to the eye of, of deadheading a flower where you take the head of the flower off so that a new bloom can grow in place in the sense, keeping the vitality of the flower by pruning it. In the same way, during Lent, we need to look at our hearts and our lives and see where we need repentance, where we need to be pruned so that we can be restored by the grace of Jesus Christ and grow. Uh, and this is what the churches in Revelation were in need of as well. And, and the church we're going to look at today is the church of Thyatira, where we're going to see that uh, it is of the utmost importance for God's people to hold fast to the purity of the gospel. Um, one of the ways that I have dealt with my um, being a father angst, uh, which has been prevalent in my life, is cooking. I've taken up cooking some, and uh, we can thank uh, Griffin Kale uh, for one of my favorite cooking tools. It's called uh, a sous vide. And it's this French cooking tool that Griffin told me about, and I was like, I want to be cool like Griffin, so I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to learn to cook with it. And all it is is essentially just, it's just, there he is. Hey, Griffin. It's just a water circulator, right? So all it does is it heats water up to a certain temperature, a high temperature. 
And then you vacuum seal meat to keep the meat pure. And then you put it in the water for a couple hours. And it cooks meat to perfect temperature. I mean, you get the best medium rare steak of your life using this bad boy. So I had friends coming in town. And, um, and Dre and I really, well, sorry. <laughs> I wanted to impress them. And so uh, I was like, we'll cook my favorite meal, which is carnitas, right? So I get this pork belly, and I get it all seasoned up, and I get it all spiced up, and I put it in the bag, and I throw some basil sprigs in there, and I vacuum seal it, and I put it in the water, and it's a 24-hour cook, and I was excited about it. They show up the next day, and I go downstairs, and I look into the, vac- the, the, the water circulator, and I look into it, and it's like really brown, And I was like, why is this water brown? And the reason is, as I opened the lid and I looked, uh, the basil sprigs had uh, poked a hole in the bag and water had entered into my beautiful pork butt. And the spices had entered all into the water. Well, we tried. We did. We cut it up. You know, I seared it up. Oof, the purity and perfection that I was expecting had become very bland and gross and just tasted a lot like water. I mean, we essentially had just boiled a pork belly butt for like 24 hours. It was gross. We did eat it, though. They were not impressed. <laughs> not at all. This is a, a good picture, though, of what was happening in the church of Thyatira, though. The, the church of Thyatira had these great intentions, they had been a faithful church that had worked hard for the sake of the gospel. They, they had works of love and faith and perseverance. There was even growth that had been seen in their community. Um, but slowly but surely, just like the water that slowly entered into that vacuum-sealed bag through the holes uh, that started by those basil sprigs, so too had the surrounding culture around this church slowly infiltrated into the church. The beliefs, the thoughts, and the works of the church had had slowly entered into their community. And it led them astray. And their message that was good and pure and whole had, had become bland. And their works had become lost and impure. John calls them on it. He, he calls them to, to hold fast to the purity of the gospel message. And that calling is the same for us. Have you all thought about how there is, there's never been more access in the history of the world for people today to tell us how to think, believe, or feel about things? From the news, to the media, to the internet, bloggers, people on Twitter, Facebook. My, my, uh, the, the, the woman who cuts my hair the other day said that she gets most of her news from Instagram now. YouTube. We're constantly being told how to think about things. What the right angle on an issue is. What the hot take on a cultural phenomenon is. How you should vote. Or what party you should align to if you believe these certain things. But this even goes for Christianity, right? We have uh, more access to voices in Christian circles today than ever. People, theologians, professors, bloggers, pastors. We can hear any of them from around the world. And they're all telling us how to believe. How to worship. How to think. What it means to be a true biblical Christian. See, we have the the world and culture constantly telling us today what it means to be pure in every aspect of our lives. That's pressing around all of us in a lot of ways. 
And the concern for us is that all of these voices become so loud that they begin to influence us. The church. And, and, and not for good. The temptation is to be influenced away from the heart of the gospel message. Away from scripture. To lose sight of the gospel. But I think perhaps our main role as the church in the world today, in this environment that we're all in, is to keep the gospel pure. Perhaps our main role is to remind people that the gospel says that the world is not mine, it's not yours, it's God's. And He created it for us to steward. But it's a sign of His glory and His goodness. And that actually the problem in the world is not out there, it's in here, it's in us. That we are the problem. That we brought sin into this world and we spoiled His good creation. And maybe it's our our role in society today to remind them that Jesus Christ is God become man. And that all that we set wrong by dying on the cross, He set right. And maybe it's our role in society today to remind people that He is coming back one day. And He's going to come back and He's going to restore all that we set wrong in the new heavens and the new earth. This gospel message has to be the main thing. It has to be the thing that we hold fast to. And the purity of that message we can never lose sight of. God created, we spoiled it. Jesus died and rose again to set it right and will return one day. And He's revealed Himself to us in Scripture. So how do we keep this pure? Does it mean that we withdraw from culture? That we shut off every person on the internet or on the TV screen? Maybe. I'm just kidding. Can't do that. No, we keep the message of the gospel pure by committing ourselves to it and holding fast to it. By starting with it. By letting the main thing be the main thing. By keeping the gospel as the most important thing in how we choose to live how we make decisions, how we vote, how we parent, how we work our jobs. That is the framework through which we see all of life. We hold fast to this gospel purity found in Scripture because if we don't, it will become bland. It will lose its effectiveness. Not because Jesus becomes less effective, because He never can, because we, but because we will be in danger of showing someone to the world that is not Him. And John's letter to the church in Thyatira gives us a blueprint on how Christ calls us to gospel purity, actually. And so we're going to walk through this passage today and see it. And we're going to see it in three ways. First, gospel purity results in gospel work. It requires gospel repentance. And it resolves to gospel perseverance. So, gospel work, gospel repentance, gospel perseverance. Uh, Before we jump in, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your message to us. Thank you that your word to us is true, just like it was true to the church in Thyatira. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to come now and open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to your truth, to your gospel this morning. It's in your son's Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So Christ's gospel purity in Jesus Christ requires gospel work. Verse 18 says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, uh, as you guys know, Revelation is prophetic literature, right? And a lot of prophetic and apocalyptic literature is ripe with symbolism and and metaphor. And they're doing this uh, right now. John is doing this in how he writes about Jesus 
But he's also doing something really pointed, too. Um, Thyatira was a guild-centric city, which means that there were uh, the bronze workers over here, and there were the masons over here, and uh, there were the cooks over here, and everyone was in a different guild. The guilds were how kind of society functioned. But what was cool about Thyatira, and for bad and for good, is that um, your guild was also your social crew. It was who you hung out with. It was the people that you spent time with. But it was also your spiritual crew, right? So it's the people you worship with, that you went to the temple with. If you were in the Thyatira and you were a working person, you were in a guild. Well, by John saying uh, that the Son of God has eyes like flame and feet are burnished bronze, he's directly talking to them. And he's saying this, Out front, the word of the Son of God reigns over your guilds. His eyes that were flames of fire, that's a direct reference to the flaming furnaces used to build and create in the society. His feet that are burnished bronze are a direct reference to the bronze workers. What John is doing is this. He's saying, the word of Jesus Christ has power even over your guilds. Do you think that King Jesus doesn't know what you do? What's going on in your city? Do you you not think that he doesn't know what challenges you're facing Church, as you go to work, as you go to your vocation, you socialize, you worship. Jesus is saying, I know you. I know the challenges you're facing. And then he does something interesting. He tells them that. He says, I see your work, your gospel work. He says, I know your works, in verse 19, your love and your faith, your service and your patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. He says, church, I know what you have done in my name. I know your faith and your love for one another and for the city. I know your service, your perseverance and kingdom work, even when it's hard. I know your growth. That's what he says, that your latter works uh, proceed from your first or exceed the first. He says, you haven't been stagnant. You've grown. He's encouraging him here. The message is clear to us as it was to them. God knows us by the work that we've done in his name. Or in the context that we uh, have outlined in this passage, we will keep the gospel message pure if we're doing the work it calls us to. If you want to know what a person believes, look not at what he says, but look what he does. Our actions are indicative of our hearts. So how do we know if we're holding fast to the gospel purity? Look at what we do. The first step is to look at us as a body and see our gospel work. Christ knows it already, right? We have to take a step back and look. Is the gospel a message to us only? Or is it a calling to something? The church in Thyatira... um, it had a lot more going wrong than they did right. And we're going to see that as we go through the rest of this passage. But Christ sees their work and he praises them for it here. I think that's really fascinating in this uh, letter that's essentially one of the, the, the darkest rebukes in all these letters that we're going to do. He praises them pretty heavily. I mean, he talks about their faith, their love, endurance, their perseverance. And I think this tells us something really really important. 
Some of you, when you heard me say the gospel work piece or knowing what a person believes by looking at what he says, the, the legalistic kind of flag goes off in your mind, right? But what I think is actually interesting about this is that uh, Christ is moving towards them in grace first before rebuke. He's saying, look at your works. You have done good gospel work. I'm proud of you. I see them. I know them. And that's true of us too. Is that Christ sees our good gospel work and the stuff that we're doing here at Hope Chapel. And I think he moves towards us in grace first. Grace always precedes judgment. Love always comes before rebuke. Our kingdom work always flows from the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not the other way around. Our kingdom work doesn't win us the grace of the gospel. It's an outworking of that grace, right? So we don't serve the poor and disenfranchised on Sunday morning or on Saturday mornings like we did yesterday because we're trying to earn God's grace or love for us. We do it because God so loved us and poured out his grace on us that we want to serve the less fortunate around us. We don't encourage you guys to care for your neighbors on your street out of a sense of duty to try and win God's approval or love or try to win ours. But because we encourage you to do it because Jesus so deeply loved us that when we were estranged from him and needed a neighbor, he moved towards us. We don't encourage you to go to community group just to be in a community group so that we can say, look how many people we have in community groups. No, we do it because through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now have a new corporate identity in him. That, I, uh, that means that we get to live together, sharing in the gospel with one another. In our stories, our pain, our joy and suffering, just like Christ shared in ours. So you, don't you see, our, our work, our kingdom work and otherwise, it's always indicative of our heart's posture. Is it set on God's grace or not? And this, this doesn't just go to what we do as a church. It goes to your individual lives too. Gospel work is simple. It's being faithful to Christ in your everyday and your ordinary. Or I love how um, Mary Lou put it earlier, in the forms of smallness. In the forms of smallness. Are you being faithful to Jesus Christ? That, even that, is gospel work. Where are you focusing on your performance and not on His grace? Because He sees your work, but really... What he sees is your heart set on him. And that, in and of itself, is grace. So good. That brings us to our second point. So we've seen that we must hold fast to the purity of the gospel message. Christ knows our work. And now we're going to see that Christ sees... Um, sorry, excuse me. Gospel purity requires gospel repentance. So verse 20 to 24 say this. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her works. Um, But she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I'll give each of you according to your works. Now, this is very intense language, right? And as I mentioned earlier, this is prophetic literature, ripe with metaphor and symbolism. And John names Jezebel. Um, this is referring to a woman in ancient Israel. She, she married King Ahab. And um, she, what, what she did was similar. 
She brought in worship of Baal into um, Hebrew and Jewish culture and kind of started to blend worship of God with worship of Baal. And the ramifications of her actions were far and wide and led Israel into decades-long strife and an abandoning of the one true faith. And so John is not saying that this woman became flesh again. He was saying that there was a woman, a prophetess in um, Thyatira, who rose to prominence, and she began to lead people astray. Her teaching began to blend it with the cultic rituals of the temple at that time. It mentions here sexual morality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Uh, Most likely, they weren't saying that uh, everyone was practicing sexual morality, but it was more like the cultic rituals of that time. A lot of times there was sexual practices, uh, but there was also sacrifices to gods that they were not supposed to eat. Essentially, what was happening was the church was beginning to worship just like the surrounding city around them. They were joining in. They were giving up um, faith in the true God alone. And John says, this, this is sinful. This is wrong. We worship one God, Jesus Christ. So here's what's interesting. God's word of judgment over her is severe, right? Uh, All those things that we read But the reason his judgment is so severe, if you look at it, is not because of the actual practices that she was leading them astray from, though they were wrong and he rebukes them. No, the real reason was because she didn't repent. He gave her time to repent and she refused. Repentance is the issue here in Thyatira. Christ sees us, yes, he, he loves uh, us. Uh, it even says in here, he is the one who searches mind and heart. He doesn't just know our works. He sees our minds and hearts and he's telling us, just like he's telling them in Thyatira, the place that you are weak is not in the way you let culture influence you necessary, but it's in your lack of repentance from that influence. As I was thinking about repentance this week um, and where we refuse to do it, I thought of two places for us that we need to grow in as a church as we look to practice repentance together. The first is interpersonal repentance, and the second is intercultural repentance. So first, interpersonal repentance. We will know that we are keeping the message of the gospel pure if we are a church marked by repentance with one another. And with those in our lives. So what is repentance? It's a kind of a, not quite million dollar word, thousand dollar word maybe. We toss it around a lot. What is it though? Well, it's both an acknowledgement of our wrongdoing, right? So there's that piece of repentance. A confessing of I messed up, here's what's wrong. But true gospel repentance also has a change of action, right? It's not just, I did this thing wrong. Babe, I'm sorry that I put my shoes here every day. I know you hate it. But it's also saying, next time I won't put them there anymore. I'm still working on that one. Um, They will, I'm working on it. Um, It's not just asking for forgiveness. It's a change of behavior as well, right? It's both. It's the two of those things together. It's owning up to your sin, confessing it, and then following through on the promise to grow and change. So when's the last time you repented to someone 
that wasn't your spouse for something you did or said? When was the last time you did it with your spouse? When's the last time you genuinely repented to your coworker or boss for something without any qualifiers and then actually followed through on what that repentance required? When's the last time you asked for forgiveness from one of your friends or someone in your community group or that you're in community group with or in community with and do you actually change your actions? When's the last time you came before God, broken over your sin and repented before him and actually changed that thing that you felt so much shame over? Repentance is hard, guys. It's not easy. But don't forget this. There's hope in those verses that we read that, she, uh, that John said to Jezebel. God knows our minds and our hearts. He sees us, all of us. He already knows those places we need to repent. It's not news to him, right? He sees our brokenness. And you know what? He doesn't turn away from us. He still loves us. This is the gift of the gospel, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. So this is why we can repent, because our sins are already paid for. If there's anyone in the world that should be able to own up to our wrongdoing, it's us as Christians. Because the heart of our message is that we're broken, that we're sinful, that we need a Savior to die for us. Because we can't do it ourselves. Repentance is what should mark our community, because it's the heart of the gospel. There's grace there. So the question this morning is, who do you need to repent to? Interpersonal repentance is the heart of what makes us the church of Jesus Christ. It's what sets us apart in a lot of ways. The second place we need to grow is in uh, intercultural repentance. So imagine, um, I want to paint a picture for you guys. um, 30 women vying for the heart of one guy. Oh yeah, The Bachelor, right? Great show. Not a great show. Guilty pleasure. Um, this season on The Bachelor, Go Madison, finale this week, um, there was uh, some drama earlier in the season, right? And there were these two girls, and they knew each other before coming on the show. They did pageants together. But one girl went to the other girl and said, hey, don't tell anyone that we know each other. She had this plan all cocked up, and, you know, it was great, and the other girl, I guess, agreed, and then they get on the show, and it becomes drama, and it's all fine. I'm not even getting the details. I could. I know it better than I should, <clears throat> but there was this one moment that I'll never forget where um, he, uh, Peter, he's whack, but um, he sits one of the girls down and says, hey, like, she blatantly said something different then what you're telling me right now, and the only thing the girl says is this, this is my truth. This is my truth. This is all I know. This is my truth. This is my truth, Peter. And he bought it because he's swack. But anyway, how often when you are in culture or you are online or here in the news, how often do you hear, this is my truth. My truth is my truth. Often, Right? We are currently entering into post-post-modernism. And if we are going to hold fast to the purity of the gospel message, we must know what culture believes and what that message is sending to us as the church. 
Don't lose me here. This is not as complicated as it sounds. We've moved from modernism to postmodernism to post-postmodernism. Modernism said that uh, there's truth. We can find it out using rational means, scientific method. We can rationalize what truth is. Postmodernism said, no, there is no absolute truth. You know what? You can't really rationally figure truth out. Don't worry about it. Just believe whatever you want to believe. It's no big deal. Postmodernism says no absolute truth. Just believe whatever you want. Kind of a throw your hands up in the air. We've come out of that. And we've come into post-postmodernism. And you know what post-postmodernism says? It says there is absolute truth. But you have an absolute truth. And you have an absolute truth. You have an absolute truth. And whatever you want that absolute truth to be, whatever it is to you, is the absolute truth. This is the cultural climate that we are moving into today. We hear it all the time. This is the false teaching that is around us that could creep into church, that could creep into our lives, and does sometimes. But here's what we believe. We believe that the truth of the gospel found in Scripture is the absolute truth. Modernism was wrong. You can't find out truth by rational means outside of Scripture. Postmodernism was wrong. There is an absolute truth that does exist, and it can be found in Scripture, in the gospel. And post-postmodernism is wrong because the gospel says that our individual truth is there is no such thing as that. There is one truth that we all believe if we're being faithful to the message of the gospel, and it's found in Scripture. It's not what we want it to be. There is a truth we can find as individuals, but it's found in Scripture. So we need to reject the lie that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. There's one truth, and it's the gospel. And when we begin to operate that way as a church, where we each say your truth is yours and mine is mine, we need to repent of our intercultural syncretism, which is just a fancy word for saying influence. We need to reject that cultural influence on us and proclaim unabashedly that the truth is found only in the gospel, only in Scripture. Not my truth, not yours, it, the truth. So where have you bought into that lie? Where have you let that cultural pressure to influence you away from the one truth? And where can we as a church, where can we repent together of that and turn back and say, truth is found in the gospel. That brings us to our third point. So we're called to gospel purity and that results in gospel work. It requires gospel repentance. And finally, it resolves to gospel perseverance. Um, One thing I want to name is that um, this can feel like a lot, right? It's putting a stake in the ground in a lot of ways to say that we're going to hold fast to gospel purity, Um, especially when we talk about gospel work and repentance. But the last verses of this passage are actually hopeful for us. It reminds us that it's the power of Christ that will enable us to persevere, even when it's hard. Even when it seems like a lot, or that the influence or pressure of culture is too much, or when it seems like our sin is too much to bear, we're reminded that it's Christ's power and strength that is the source of our life. It's His Spirit through us that enables our perseverance. Verse 24 says, But the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not let that cultural influence to seep in, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not 
lay on you any other burden. He says, there's nothing more. Hold fast to the purity of the gospel. That's it. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even I myself have received authority from my Father. He says, those of you holding to this message, continue to hold on. I'm coming. And I'm with you now. He says, those of you pursuing gospel purity, there's nothing else I hold you to. Continue to hold fast. And when I return, you will be with me in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is our hope when it gets hard. That is the power of our perseverance. But verse 28 says this. He says, we will be given the morning star. Roman emperors throughout history claimed divinity. um, And they said that they were descended from Venus. And Venus was also known as the morning star. So Jesus claiming this for himself is saying, you Roman emperors, you claim divinity, but I am truly God. You who says you are descended from gods, you are lying. I am the true son of God. He says, church, you will receive me. This is Jesus saying, I will give you myself. The morning star is now a symbol associated with the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And what do we know about that reign and rule? We know that it started at the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the true morning star, the true ruler of this world, and I'm at work right here and right now. Gospel perseverance can be yours because Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. One thing that is hopeful for us this morning is the promise that we will persevere. There's no earthly ruler, no cultural influence, no false teacher, no attack on the church that will ever overthrow the kingdom of God. You know why? Because it's not up to us. He is ruling and reigning. The question is whether we are coming under that rule and reign or not. Not whether or not it's there. It's there. He's ruling and he's reigning. And at times it can feel like holding fast to, to gospel purity is outdated. It can feel like it's old-fashioned, increasingly offensive to society at large. It can feel like the culture pressing in all around us signifies the end of Christianity as we know it. Or that we have to let go of core tenets of our faith to survive. And this could not be further from the truth. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ rules and reigns. We don't. The kingdom of God will always persevere because he will continue to reign. It's His power, His strength, His grace, His love, His mercy, His justice and truth that will uphold it. And we get to be a part of that. He is the true morning star. As Christ goes, so does the church. He is committed to bringing renewal and restoration through His kingdom here. And nothing's going to stop Him. And are we going to partner with Him or not? And we're not always going to do this perfectly. We're going to succumb to societal and cultural pressures. We're going to not always going to get it right. And, and this is why the gospel message that we hold to, the purity of it, is grace and not perfection. The only perfection that we hold to in the gospel message is Jesus Christ's. The rest is grace for us. Where we get it wrong, His grace covers us. And where we get it right, His grace enables us. Gospel perseverance begins and ends with Jesus' good grace to us and to the world. 
So that means that holding to gospel purity, if we hold to it, will resolve in gospel perseverance because it is Christ in us that will persevere. Do you believe that this morning? Is that where your hope is this morning? Because that is the free gift given to us as God's people. Um, I am happy to report that I have since had better successful cooking attempts. Uh, The one thing I love about that cooking tool um, is that it, uh, funny enough, for how French and fancy it is, um, it requires very little of me. I don't have to do a lot, and I, um, it actually cooks things really, really good and well. It's not me. It's not my skill. It's not my good greatness, good cooking stuff. I can, I can follow a recipe, but that's about it. Um, the power comes from it, not from me. And that's just a reminder to us, is that we're called to, to gospel purity because God is in his power and his reign and his goodness that we're able to. And it's worth it. You know why? Because we don't want to lose our taste, our saltiness. Salt without saltiness is worth being spit out, right? It's, it's not even good anymore. But the goodness doesn't come from in us. It comes from Christ. And so we hold fast to gospel purity because that is what the world needs. And if we hold fast to it, they'll see Jesus Christ in us. So where do we need to repent? Well, we'll repent knowing God's grace. Where do we need to remind ourselves of God's perseverance in and through us? Because in, in that, we'll show the world Christ. And where do we need to look at our works and say, are we being faithful here or not? In the smallness of things, are we being faithful? Because it's even there, it's even there that God is working in and through us. So church, let us hold fast to that gospel. Amen.